Well, over the last three weeks, Jeff has uh, begun walking us through the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 through 7. And he started by walking us through the first two-thirds, really, of the Beatitudes. We did an introduction to the Beatitudes, and then Jeff walked us through two-thirds of them. And I'm going to continue that today, finishing up the Beatitudes. And the plan for the rest of the summer is to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, um, which takes us through Matthew 7 and probably just before Labor Day. Um, and I'll also be preaching next week. Um, so if you don't like this week, then you know what to expect next week. And um, same. So anyway, I'll be continuing next week talking about disciples of salt and light. But for today, we're finishing up the Beatitudes, looking at Matthew 5, 8 through 12. And while I'm only going to be preaching from 5, 8 through 12 today, I've included the entire section of the Beatitudes in your bulletin. I'm going to read from that to start out today. So please follow along with me as I read from the Word of God, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've called a people to yourself, that you've assembled um, this church body, um, which is ultimately the body of you. We pray, Lord, as we hear these Beatitudes preached today, Lord, that that you would humble us, that you would um, uplift us wherever we're at, and ultimately we would walk away knowing that you are good, you are perfectly good and worthy of all of our admiration and affection. So we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, when Jeff began the preaching on the Beatitudes three weeks ago, he correctly explained that the Beatitudes are not a checklist. And I want to echo this too. Jesus isn't telling those hearing the Beatitudes something like, strive to maintain these blessed characteristics so that you can receive these promises. Rather, all disciples of Christ, all believers in Christ will inevitably find themselves embodying the blessed characteristics described in the Beatitudes. Certainly not perfectly, but they'll nevertheless be present in believers of Christ. In one sense, these characteristics of the Beatitudes are like the fruit of the Spirit we find in Galatians 5, strictly in the sense that they're not things that we, they're not a checklist or things that we need to do necessarily. They're things that the Spirit works in believers as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. On the other hand, though, even though we know we don't produce these blessed characteristics on our own, if you're a believer asking, if you're a believer reading this text, we should ask ourselves, whether or not we're presently demonstrating these things. 
Not that we would walk down the path of endless introspection, always asking ourselves the question, am I truly a disciple? And all the angst that goes with that. But that we would continue to keep in step with what a disciple is called to embody. Asking the Holy Spirit to grant us grace to walk in these blessed characteristics and to more fully yearn and long for them as we continue to walk with Christ in our lives. Well, Daniel Doriani, he's one commentator on the Sermon on the Mount, helpfully explains that the Beatitudes actually do more than describe a disciple. Although they do do that, certainly, and we're going to be talking about that in a large measure today, the Beatitudes, first and foremost, describe Jesus. You see, Christ exemplifies each and every one of these blessed characteristics, and he invites us to walk in his footsteps as we imitate our Lord, and then he further gives us the grace to walk in his footsteps. The Beatitudes are first and foremost a signpost that should point each and every one of us to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. In fact, the reason disciples of Christ are pure in heart, the reason disciples hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth is because Christ has first and foremost united us in fellowship with himself. And as we enjoy being in fellowship with our king, we begin to reflect him who ultimately embodies all of these blessed characteristics. And we'll touch on this point later in the sermon, but one way to illustrate this is to consider your longest lasting relationship, your most meaningful and deep relationship with somebody else, whether it be a spouse, a brother or sister, a mother or father, or even a really good friend. The more you're around that person and the more years you spend with that person, the more their idiosyncrasies become your idiosyncrasies, the more their way of thinking becomes your way of thinking, and vice versa. Now, understandably, we don't influence Christ, uh, nor do we pick up any sinful tendencies from Christ like we would in a relationship with a spouse or a good friend. But the point is that relationships are deeply impactful, and preeminently so in our relationship with Christ. So, what I want us to show today, what I want to show us today from these three Beatitudes, and this could really apply to any of the Beatitudes we're looking at, is that they first describe the result of our fellowship with Christ while implicitly calling us to walk in our master's footsteps who exemplifies these blessed characteristics. So first, a disciple follows in Christ's footsteps by being pure in heart. So if looking at the text again, Matthew 5, 8 reads, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, despite what this language might conjure in our minds, this characteristic of a disciple doesn't entail sinless perfection. Perhaps the language of being pure in heart might conjure in our minds the image of a disciple who walks around with a glowing halo on their head. However, that's not what's going on here. Rather, being pure in heart pertains to an authentic disposition, or what we'll refer to in the sermon as a single-mindedness. Not a narrow-mindedness, a single-mindedness that's brought about by a changed heart. One commentator says it like this, and I think this is a really good way to wrap all of this into a nice nice one-sentence package. He says, The pure in heart exhibit a single-minded devotion to God that stems from the internal cleansing created by following Jesus. And I'll repeat that again, because I think it's a, it's a pretty good summary of what we're saying here. The pure in heart exhibit a single-minded devotion to God that stems from the internal cleansing 
created by following Jesus. And this last point is important and foundational. The starting point for a single-minded life is first the renewing power of the Lord who purifies our hearts. And this is another indication of why the Beatitudes aren't a checklist that we have to strive to maintain in order to receive these promises. We can't be called pure in heart without the regenerating work of Christ wrought in our hearts. We need Christ, in a sense, to rip out our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh so that our desires and our affections and the things that we long after can be rightly directed. And when he does do this, when he does do this for all disciples of Christ, the inevitable result is that we live our lives with a single-minded devotion to the Lord, always asking how our relationship with Christ impacts everything we do, regardless of how weighty those things might be or how trivial they might be. So to sum up everything we just said, a disciple loves God from the heart and reflects that love for God through an authentic and a changed life. Jesus is concerned here with an authentic and a single-minded life. He's not expecting sinlessness, but he is calling us to a life that starts by being captivated by the grace of God wrought in our hearts and to live a life that reflects this captivation through service to God and service to others. Well, one text I was reflecting upon this week in preparation for the sermon that I think is a really good illustration of purity in heart in the life of a disciple comes later in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, 19 through 24. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. I'm going to read the passage briefly and then just give a few comments on this. And again, my point in reading this and giving a few comments is simply because I think this is a good illustration of what purity in heart looks like. So let me read 6, 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So first, in 619, Jesus exhorts listeners, he exhorts the people hearing the Sermon on the Mount, and exhorts us as the reader to stop storing treasures up on earth. In other words, he calls us to change the things we value. Remember, Jesus is primarily addressing believers, for those who have already had their hearts purified by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who have had our hearts purified, it's fitting that the things we value and the things we chase after conform to our calling as disciples. In fact, fact, verse 21 is almost a diagnostic that reveals the things that we spend our time thinking about, the things that we spend our time dreaming about, they reveal <clears throat> what we value most. They reveal what we treasure. And they ultimately reveal the condition of our hearts. Well, when we arrive in verse 22, 622 and 23, this whole idea of the eye as the lamp of the body 
Jesus restates this point by way of an illustration. And his point here is that the eye is a window into the heart. And therefore, whatever we fix our eyes upon reveals something about our allegiances and what we prize and what we value. Now, the interesting feature about this text is that the phrase, if your eye is healthy, could literally be translated, if your eye is single in purpose. All the translators have something like, if your eye is healthy, if your eye is uh, clear, if your eye is generous. They all have something like that. And those are good, accurate, contextual translations. I don't want to take anything away from those translations. But at its most basic dictionary or lexical level, the Greek word behind healthy here is something like single in purpose or being single-minded. The point I'm trying to make with this is that the call for purity of heart or the call for single-mindedness is a call for us to examine the things that we look at and the things we prize and value. The Christian life isn't just one piece of a pie with our status at work or money occupying other pieces. No, literally everything we hold dear as Christians must be filtered through our relationship with Christ. There's no room for other idols in a relationship with Christ. And that's what single-mindedness looks after. Well, as we said at the outset, I think I said this in the introduction, there's a theological rationale for why Jesus blesses those who are pure in heart. The pure in heart have first been, are those who have been united into fellowship with the Lord and reflect Christ, who is ultimately pure in heart. So let's ask, how is Christ pure in heart? How do we see in Scripture Christ demonstrating what purity in heart looks like? Well, we see him demonstrate it numerous times. And again, I'll be clear, Christ is pure in heart, not in the same sense that we are, in that Christ didn't need to have his heart circumcised. He didn't need to have a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit like we have. He already was that as God. But we see his purity in heart demonstrated through his singular devotion to the Father. One example of this is in Matthew 4, when we see Jesus being led into the wilderness and tempted by Satan. We see Jesus numerous times shunning Satan as he singularly devotes himself to the Father and the Father's will. And then later on in the Gospel of Matthew, the tail end of the Gospel, Matthew 26, when Jesus is praying in the garden, we see a relentless devotion to the Father's will above anything else, even when he knows that he has to drink the cup. Christ exemplifies a single-minded devotion to the Father and invites his disciples, invites you and I, to gaze upon him. And as we gaze upon our Lord, all the other things that vie for our affection and our attention will fade to the background. And in the second half of this verse, there's an extraordinary promise awaiting disciples of Christ. Those who seek the Lord from your heart and make him your primary loyalty, the promise is that disciples will see God. Now, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and again, I think Jeff touched on this a few weeks ago, so I'm just repeating something he already told us. Like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes come with a rich Old Testament heritage. So let's ask ourselves, what is the heritage behind being pure in heart? And for this heritage, we turn to Psalm 24, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to go ahead and read it. If you want to turn your Bible, feel free. Psalm 24, 1 through 6, the the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Seeing God is both a present and a future promise. But the full realization of this promise points forward to sometime in the future. It promise points to a day when we'll stand in front of the throne of grace in the new heavens and the new earth in unhindered, almost unimaginable fellowship with our Lord. And there's a lot of uncertainty, even among the commentators, attached to what this promise or the fulfillment of this promise actually looks like. And maybe many of us may wonder, well, what's that, what's that going to look like to behold the face of God? I don't know. But ultimately, like I said, what this peers, what this looks forward to, what this points us to, is the idea that we're going to have an unimaginable, unhindered fellowship with the Lord, where there's no taint of sin, no taint of suffering, no taint of any of the things or any of the effects of sin that ravage us today and that taint our relationship with the Lord right now. We follow our master's footsteps by being single-minded, by shunning all other ultimate loyalties. And the promise is the enjoyment of a relationship that, in a sense, resembles the close intimacy that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share together in the triune relationship. Well, next, a disciple follows in Christ's footsteps as a peacemaker. And again, I'll read Matthew 5, 9 for this. Blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called sons of God. So if being pure in heart, what we just said, means shunning dual loyalties, means being singly devoted to the Father, being a peacemaker reminds us of our responsibilities to neighbor, our responsibilities to one or other. Single-mindedness and love for God is foundational, but our relationship with Christ must transcend into our horizontal relationships with our brother, our sisters, our neighbors, and so forth. Consider, for instance, when Christ is asked, what the greatest commandment is in Matthew 22. How does he respond? He says, love God, love others. That's a simple paraphrase of it. The Christian life can't be reduced to one or the other. And I think these Beatitudes really reflect that movement where we're focused on singularly on the Lord. But that's not enough. We also need to be focused on being peacemakers, on loving our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. So this Beatitude tells us that a disciple of Christ is a peacemaker, This is somebody who seeks reconciliation with others. And while this entails resolving disputes between those who have problems with you or even those who you have problems with, the primary image associated with a peacemaker is one who stands between two warring parties. A disciple sees conflict between others even and is willing to step in and resolve the conflict for the sake of unity even when it might seem like it's none of your business. Overall, then, we could say that a disciple is one who seeks reconciliation, not settling for fractious or awkward silence that accompanies clear tension within the body of believers. When this clear tension takes place, you you see gossip, threats to unity, the peacemaker enters. 
rather than pretending everything is peachy and we're just all fun, good, loving Christians with a smile on our face and we're just so blessed every day, the peacemaker sees through the facade, sees through the smokescreen, and enters. A good illustration, and there are many illustrations in the scripture of a peacemaker, but an illustration that came to my mind when I was preparing for this is the parable of the prodigal son and really looking at what the father in this parable does. This parable is found in Luke 15, if you've never read it before. And I'm not going to read the whole parable now, but just for reference, Luke 15 would be the place to go. Well, in this text, there are two sons. There's a younger son who spurns really all cultural sensibilities by requesting his inheritance and spurning the father and leaving early. And then there's an older son who we meet later in the parable who sees his rights being um, threatened when the father reconciles a relationship with the son. So essentially, how this applies here, as the father is a peacemaker, is when this younger son who spurned all cultural sensibilities comes home, the father runs out to meet the son. He's so about making peace with his son that he runs to meet him. And then later in the parable, at the tail end of the parable, when we meet the older son, who again spurns cultural sensibilities, insults his father, we see the father still goes out to meet the older son to make peace and reconciliation with him. Well, being a peacemaker, in this sense that, that's demonstrated in the parable of the prodigal son, and in the sense that Jesus advocates, can require tremendous self-sacrifice, Right? When we're called to make peace because somebody has an issue with us or we have an issue with others, it often requires us to enter the haze of relationships and to prepare ourselves for confrontation, uneasiness, and often a great deal of misunderstanding. It can be messy to be a peacemaker. But another aspect of a peacemaker that I don't want to neglect is our evangelism and Christian witness. We're actually peacemakers when we share the gospel with other people outside of the faith, when we pray for those outside of the body of believers. Although we know transformation of becoming a Christian is ultimately in God's hands, when we pronounce the gospel, we're in a sense partaking in a peacemaking ministry, seeking to reconcile people back to God. And this is what Paul, I think, has in mind in 2 Corinthians 5 when we learn that Christ reconciled us, the church believers, to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, we participate in the ministry of Christ's reconciliation through our witness and through the church's proclamation of the gospel, through our worship, and even through our sacraments. Again, though, like all of the other Beatitudes and like what I would say our main focus today is when we partake in the ministry of peacemaking, we're simply following the pinnacle example of our Lord Jesus Christ who has united us to himself. Colossians 1.20 tells us that God made peace through the blood of Christ. So in a sense, he inconvenienced himself in ways that we never could even try to be inconvenienced in order to make peace through his life, death, and resurrection. And the promise is that peacemakers, disciples of Christ who make peace, will be called sons of God. An extraordinary and personal promise. So let's look at this promise. What does it mean to be called sons of God? Well, son of God language is abundant throughout Scripture. 
And there are various, various nuances depending on the context. Even when Son of God language is applied to Jesus, as it often is, we know Jesus as the Son of God, there are different emphases depending on the context in which it's applied. And although we often associate, I think, Son of God language with Christ, we know Christ as the Son of God, this type of language, Son of God language, is often applied to humans in Scripture. It's applied to people like you and I. In Luke 3.38, for instance, Adam, in the genealogy of Luke, is called Son of God, a Son of God. Now, this clearly isn't a Son of God in the same sense that Christ is, but it simply refers to Adam's unique relationship, um, his unique um, identity as an offspring of God, in a sense that no other person really shares in that role. In Exodus 4.22-23, Son of God language is applied collectively to Israel as a whole denoting them as a special people whom God chooses as his own. And then similarly, though slightly different, God refers to his covenant people as sons of God. So we see son of God, Israel, but also sons, plural, of God. He tells Israel in Deuteronomy 14.1 that they are sons of God. The implication here is that not only is the nation of Israel referred to as a son of God, but all true covenant members of the community, both of Israel and of you and I as the church, can likely can, can be called sons of God. So my point here isn't to hopefully confuse you, but to, to show you the abundance of language of son of God. And when we talk of son of God language, we have to kind of understand what the different what the nuance um, in play is. And this last sense, where Israel is called sons of God, which denotes each individual member, true member of the covenant community is a son of God, is the sense we find here in Matthew 5, 9. D.A. Carson comments on this passage, writing, this, These words, these sons of God, this word, presupposes that God is the supreme peacemaker, with the result that those who share, those who make peace, show themselves to be, in a sense, members of God's peacemaking clan, as it were, they are sons of God. So we share in this peacemaking ministry of our Father, and we're thus associated with him. And one way when I was thinking about how I could illustrate this further, I, I thought about something in my own life. Um, my lovely wife often comments on my uh, strange or awkward sense of humor. And not only do I have an awkward sense of humor, I'm just an awkward person, uh, but that's another point. Um, I have an awkward or strange sense of humor that nobody really gets except me. That's why if, I, if I'm ever around you and I say something kind of weird that you're like, what's he getting at? And I'm smiling to myself. It means that I, I just made a joke in my head and I'm laughing at myself, even if you don't get it or really understand what I'm saying. Well, the only other person that I know who really understands me and who gets my sense of humor is my dad. And that's why sometimes when I'm on the phone with my dad and my wife is overhearing it and we start laughing at one another, my wife will roll her eyes and she'll say something like, you are your father's son. <laughs> you see, my father and I, my dad and I, we share something in common. We share a weird sense of humor that nobody really gets except us. Being a son means that I share something in common with my father that those outside the relationship really can't understand and even maybe kind of look on with a lot of confusion. And this is what it means when we're called peacemakers, sons of God. When we participate in sacrificial peacemaking, we reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. Something that nobody really outside the body of believers really gets when they observe our peacemaking ministry. Well, keep in mind also the structure of the Beatitudes. 
Each promise in the Beatitudes, if you're looking at your text, is placed in the future tense. But these promises in the future tense are surrounded by two promises in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, as we read in verse 3, and then we read in verse 10. And this is a stylistic way that Matthew tells us the promises are present because the kingdom of God is present in here, but it's also future in that we await the full realization of these promises. Again, the promise reminds us of our unique covenant relationship that believers have with the Lord. A unique covenant relationship that we have now as sons of God, but that we'll experience in full in the future when we sit beneath before, before our Lord in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, this promise reminds us of our covenant relationship believers have with the Lord. And, now, and as we'll now see, just as we identify with Christ in his peacemaking ministry as sons and daughters, we also identify with him in persecution. And this takes us to our final part of today's passage, uh, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. I'm going to read it again just to restate it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is the final beatitude, and it's a fitting conclusion, I think, to the beatitudes. When we peer back on all of the Beatitudes, ones that Jeff talked about and the ones that we talked about today, there's a very countercultural bent to each one. For instance, whereas the message driven home often in the schools and the workplaces calls us to hunger and thirst for prestige and status, Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Naturally, then, when we come to the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus expects that the disciple who lives a countercultural life will encounter persecution. This is the inevitable result of, of being united in fellowship with Christ. Yet, thankfully for us, Jesus doesn't take persecution lightly. In fact, commentators are in agreement that verses 11 and 12, so again, just reminding us of the structure of the Beatitudes, are really an expansion on this final beatitude of persecution. It's almost as if Jesus talks about persecution and then he double-clicks on it, both to clarify what awaits disciples while also reminding us and assuring us of the promise that awaits disciples. Well, when this text elaborates upon persecution, Jesus first makes it clear that it's inevitable for all disciples of Christ. Not only does Jesus make it clear in this text that we're reading today, but really the whole New Testament testifies that persecution is inevitable. Paul, I think, says it even more bluntly in 1 Timothy 3.12, where he writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise in Scripture, and it's reflected throughout the New Testament that we, as disciples of Christ, will experience persecution. So what is persecution? Well, this seems like a, a question with a pretty obvious answer, and I'm sure a lot of us have a very general and probably an accurate understanding of what persecution is, but let's not take anything for granted. Let's see what the text of the Beatitudes has to tell us about persecution. Specifically now, I'm looking at verse 11. Here Jesus unpacks persecution by giving us three subtle dimensions or ways at looking at it. First, he says there's reviling. 
And your translations might have something different, but just track with me. I'm going through these three different movements he makes. There's reviling. This refers to those who heap insults on you, verbally mock you. According to one commentator, this is the, these are the, this is the same word behind um, reviling in the Greek used of those who hurled insults and mocked Jesus when he hung on the cross. So it's a deep and uh, intense, relentless mockery. Well, second, there's persecution, persecuting. And this specific use refers to those who physically pursue a disciple in order to inflict bodily or physical harm. And I think this type of persecution is probably what many of us think about when we consider what persecution is. Well, then finally, there is the uttering of evil and falsehood. And this is a little bit different than reviling. This, is, um, <clears throat> this refers to the inaccurate or inappropriate charges that are leveled upon disciples of Christ. In the early church, for instance, the Romans um, accused Christians of being cannibals. So taking to the Lord's Supper, they thought we were cannibals. And they also accused us of being atheists, of denying the, the pantheon of gods um, and, and devoting ourselves to only the one true God. So these are charges that the, Roman, that the Romans leveled upon Christians. Well, when we consider and chew on these three different senses of persecution, my suspicion is that for many of us in this room, we really can't identify very well. Scripture clearly teaches, the New Testament is very clear, that disciples of Christ, the normative experience for the Christian life is persecution. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think many of us have really been persecuted in the full range of senses that the New Testament discusses. Maybe in the sense of being mocked or having somebody make a sly comment behind our backs, but I doubt many of us felt have felt like we're going to be killed for our faith. Now, please forgive me if you really have experienced these things. I don't mean to belittle your experience, but my suspicion is that for the vast majority of us in this room, we really haven't been persecuted. Even as I was writing this sermon, I was having a hard time thinking about a time in my life when I was really persecuted. And yes, I've had the sly comments people have made behind my back, sometimes to my face, but I haven't really had it all that bad. And let's be clear. Jesus isn't talking about a genuine or a real struggle with sin. Sometimes this feels like persecution in a sense, but this isn't what Jesus is talking about in this text. Furthermore, Jesus isn't talking about the natural consequences for our sin. So if you've been issued a speeding citation, you haven't been persecuted. If you're speeding down Taylor Road going 60 miles an hour after the surf's and Tim pulls you over and he issues you a speeding citation, I'm sorry, but that's not persecution. Notice Jesus qualifies in this text when he says in verse 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for being a follower and a disciple of Christ. Well, my goal isn't to make us feel bad about having a limited experience with persecution. But I do want us all to recognize the very weird time and place in which we all live. Persecution is not the norm in 21st century America, at least not right now. And in many respects, this is a good thing. We have freedom to worship, and we have freedom to live our lives as Christians. But I also want us to recognize this isn't the case everywhere in the world. In fact, statistics show that in the 20th century, around the world, there were more martyrs than in the previous 19 centuries combined. Persecution is very real and is very alive elsewhere in the world. And even though we don't experience persecution, 
Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world certainly do. So what are we supposed to do with this text? Jesus promises persecution for disciples of Christ, yet our experience doesn't really reflect this. And again, I'm not suggesting that we would intentionally go seek out persecution right now. There's a sense in which we really can't control the way the world perceives us or looks at us. And we should thank God, again, for the many freedoms we do have. But because Scripture tells us persecution is the norm, it's at least worth asking, why are we not experiencing it? Well, first, I would like each of us to consider whether or not we've succumbed to risk management as Christians. Consider again the beatitude of a peacemaker. We said that this is someone who takes risks, sometimes deep risks, in order to reconcile relationships. This disciple puts himself or herself in a very uncomfortable and even dangerous position in order to make things right. There's a very real cost to our discipleship that we shouldn't seek to subvert or minimize. So ask yourself, have you intentionally avoided risks? Have you been double-minded, living one way in private and in the midst of the Christian community, but neglecting the ethics of the kingdom in public? It's at least worth asking ourselves that question. And second, again, for the rationale, consider why Scripture tells us persecution is normative for believers. Again, our rationale is because we've been united to Christ as believers, and Scripture tells us because we've been united to him, we've also been united to him in a death like his. When we consider the three aspects of persecution that we just unpacked above, that Jesus laid forth, he was persecuted in every single one of those ways. It's only biblical that we would share in that type of persecution as followers, as those who have been united in fellowship with our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Jesus' countercultural statements, not only in the Beatitudes, but really elsewhere in the New Testament, elsewhere in Scripture, are offensive. It is offensive to be a disciple of Christ, and we're probably experiencing that and are going to experience that more and more as we continue in 21st century America. Because the way of life Jesus sets forth promises to overthrow gods in this society. The kingdom of God overthrows the idols the world desperately holds on to. And it's for this reason that the king and the subjects of the kingdom can expect to receive the defensive blow from a society struggling for survival and struggling for meaning. But ultimately, the kingdom of God is here And the kingdom of God has and will prevail. Well, in conclusion, when we become followers of Christ, our hearts are first and foremost radically transformed. The way we think changes. Our desires and our affections become progressively more aligned with our Lord. In one sense, we become more like Jesus. Certainly not in the sense that we have some type of divinity but in the sense that the countercultural ethics and characteristics that Christ embodies, they become ours. Furthermore, the promises become ours too. These are benefits of being united with Christ. However, there's also a deep cost to being a disciple. And we might not right now experience that cost in the normative manner that Scripture paints. But we should expect every day to lose the things that the world values for the surpassing greatness of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. 
of being united with him and in sharing in fellowship with him. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that what you speak, you promise. Both the cost of discipleship and the promises for your disciples. And we pray that we would count the cost in a sense. That we would consider knowing you and the surpassing greatness of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more valuable than anything else that's thrown at us. That we would see the sacrifice that you've made for us. That we would um, chase after you, not only in the good, but also in wanting to sacrifice for others. And that, Lord, that your word will continue to be impressed upon us by your Holy Spirit as we walk along the path. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.